Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. And I am Ryan Daly. Uh, Ryan, we've exercised the demon. The specter of Max Allen Collins is no longer hanging over the show. Are you excited? <sighs> she is good. She is good. It was, it was tough cleaning up like all of the, the vomit that the Linda Blair ghost like spit out and everything like that, but it was... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> this room is clean. Yeah, uh, yeah. This, <laughs> it it does feel good to like to, to to know you're not going into going. Oh, here we go again. Oh, so, uh, but yeah, but we're here to discuss Batman number four thirteen, uh, which is a fill in issue and the start of Mike W. Barr's last storyline in Detective Comics number five eighty. But before we jump into these. We should probably take a look at what else was on the comic shelves in the spinner racks at the time. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And these both were cover dated November of 1987. So, gosh, um, we started this podcast with Batman 400, which was cover dated October of 96. So we're just over a year advanced in our coverage. And this <laughs> podcast is like three years old. So... <laughs> Yeah, we might want to we might want to step up the pace on this a little bit. <laughs> and of course, as you're listening to this, you're probably like, "Well, there's like been all these episodes in a row, but you don't know it's been like a year that we've been recording these episodes." Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're good more than a year since the last time we released an episode at the time of this uh, recording. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so time traveling back 32 years at, at the time of this recording to November cover dates of 1987. The first thing that jumps out at me is. Uh, we've got Amazing Spider-Man number 294, which is the first part of Craven's Last Hunt, Fearful Symmetry, by J.M.D. Mateus and Mike Zeck. And that runs through all the Spider-Man titles this month. Yeah, also Peter Parker, Spectacular in 132, and Web of Spider-Man 32. Yeah, this was the, the second half of the, the Craven's Last Hunt. Oh, it's uh, the second half. Okay, yeah, yeah, I got, we, I got confused. Well, uh, it's been no, so long we, since we recorded the first part, I forgot. <laughs> right, it's been... <laughs> been like five years since we recorded the first half of this okay because I, I always think of that cover as being like part one but it's not it's it's this it's it's not the it's not part one so i think part of it's because they parodied that on the what the cover with spider ham oh uh, yeah yeah i think you're right <laughs> that's i think it's why I, I think of that so my bad yeah this is but it's still part of uh craven's last hunt so right, right. Uh, anything else jump out at you this month um, I mean, I had to give a special mention to uh, Secret Origins issue 20, uh, going back to my Secret Origins podcast. This was the one that talked about Batgirl, which was relevant for like three months. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. and, then, and then the Golden Age Doctor Midnight, um, and I covered those on the podcast with Stella, and then Shag interrupted and found his way on the episode somehow. Right, which is, you know, Kevin Maguire cover, so of course right. Shag interrupted, even though I think that was way before the Bwahaha cast. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of Bwahaha, there uh, Blue Beetle number 18 features uh, the return of Dan Garrett, who is trying to choke Ted Cord. Uh, that was <laughs> that was an interesting storyline there, and and oddly enough, that was kind of uh, they. When AC Comics, AmeriComics, famous for FemForce, briefly had the Charlton rights, they did a story very similar where Dan Garrett and Ted Cord fight, hmm. uh, which is like, if you can find that comic, it's 
you know, fairly obscure because it's a small company, but uh, I found that, like, I think a buddy of mine actually found that before this issue came out, like at a comic shop or a flea market or something, and then we got this issue, and we're like, hey, (laughs) (laughs) there's some similar stuff going on here. I'm I'm not saying they, you know, it might be parallel thinking, but it, you know, I don't know, but uh, kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, also, speaking of the Boahaha cast, uh, this month saw the release of Justice League International number seven. That was the first time it was actually called Justice League International. They changed the title with this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's the one where they they fully go international and open the embassies, and you get Rocket Red, who's <laughs> that Rocket Red doesn't stay on the team very long, uh, <laughs> and several other members join Captain Adam and stuff. So probably longer uh, than Doctor Light stayed on the team. So. Oh well, that's true. Yeah, it's like she she was was she ever even in costume in that comic? I, I don't think she was I think until just the cover. yeah, the, just the cover. Yeah, exactly. Which is interesting because she's the most international member of the team in terms of ethnicity. You think she right. really would have wanted to keep her around for representation right. purposes? But nope. It's like, you know, until Shaq started covering Justice League Europe, I didn't realize how non-European the Justice League Europe was. Oh, Besides yeah. Dimitri, there's like nobody. You know, it's like till they get Crimson Fox. You know, it's like, right. what? <laughs> Speaking of new members, uh, Marvel Age has a Meet the New Joes cover feature featuring new uh, characters and action figures from G.I. Joe that year. And this was the last series of figures that I bought as a kid. This was the swan song year for me and G.I. Joe when I I, I I aged out of toys briefly, you know. <laughs> aged out of playing with toys. Like, I, I, I know that, like, one of them's, like, uh, Law and Orders, yep. the, the, the guy and the dog, and then Crazy Legs is the paratrooper guy, and uh, I think that one guy, is that Psych Out? Psych Out is the, has the bright blonde hair and the neon green shirt. Who's it? Like, whole specialty was psychological warfare. And as a kid, you're like... What does that even mean? How do you incorporate that into an action figure? Right. Like, when you're an adult and you actually, you think about like sort of like propaganda, he was actually used really, really well in one issue of like special missions where they kind of like got into like how you use propaganda and like fake media and everything to kind of like to bring your opponents down. I'm like, this is really clever. But again, for a kid to play with this toy, I was like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> um, what was the name of the guy with all the missiles and the red helmet? Fast draw. Fast draw. He was. It was uh, almost like they like like they turn him into like a uh, like a quick draw or just like a six shooter. Except instead of you know firing like six shooters, he's got like these missile launchers on his hip. Yeah. yeah. He was a cool action figure though. He I was, mean, yeah. he was. Yeah, it's like you know, like Law and Order were like grounding things and crazy legs to a point, but the rest of them were like they totally they totally crossed the Rubicon of. Science yeah, this, this year was definitely the start when they kind of like went. That way, and I love the characters from this year because, uh, like, this was when I was really kind of reaching that age where I was hunting them myself, and I wasn't just getting GI Joes for for gifts and presents and everything. Now I was old enough to like run down the toy aisle looking for the ones that I wanted. And so, yeah, I have a lot of affection for this year, but I also feel like the villains from this year, and I maybe have said this before. Who the heck knows? Because again, it's been so long since we talked about. It. But the villains from this era. This was the year that had Raptor, like, yeah. the the bird themed guy, Crocmaster, Big Boa, who looked like Bane, except instead of like a luchador mask, he had this weird kind of helmet, like something out of like a Mad Max movie or something. Mm-hmm. Crystal Ball, who was the guy who looked like Dracula and had a file card allegedly written by Stephen King. 
the the Cobra Commander with the weird silver body armor and stuff like that. Yeah. And I just remember like looking at that group of characters a couple of years ago, and I was like, if those weren't GI Joes, those could have been like third or fourth generation superpowers villains. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, they could you're, have. you're getting away from terrorist organization, like homegrown, like the Cobra Troopers and everything with the masks and everything. You're getting into super villain territory. Like this is getting way kind of cartoonish. I'm like, these guys should be fighting, you know, the Global Guardians or something or the superpowers. <laughs> the super- <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's like, and I think that's one reason why, I, even though the scale was a little different, I like started incorporating those characters into my superpowers play at the time you know yeah. because because it's like they fit right in you yeah. know start the aesthetic wise so yeah it's fun stuff we probably talked about gi joe way too much we tend to do that <laughs> on here but uh speaking of toys uh we get the masters of the universe the motion picture number one from marvel star comics line but just looking at the cover you would never know that it's adapting <laughs> the movie because that's straight up just plain old he-man that's not dolph lundgren on the cover right there of course not no <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's I guess, yeah, like Man at Arms and Tila look straight from the. I mean, I guess you got Gwildor, so that's kind of like the giveaway. But all yeah. the other characters look like they're they're toyetic versions, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's which I guess Mattel didn't until like now. I guess um, Super Seven's going to put out actual movie figures that are based on the movie, but Mattel did not release a He Man that looked like Dolph Lundgren or even in the same suit. So. And same with Skeletor, so, you know, right. it, it, they were just following suit. That was, I guess, the towing the Mattel line when it came to the movie at this point, so. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. Masters of the Universe movie, the greatest fourth world movie that we could have gotten. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, now, I'm not sure if it's a great Masters of the Universe movie, but it's a great fourth world movie. <laughs> Although I do, I do actually enjoy it. I I, I enjoy it. I, for, I always had a, a weird sort of love for that. Now I say that I haven't watched the movie in a quarter of a century, but as a kid, I loved it for what it was. Yeah, I, it was one of those cases when I watched it as a kid. I enjoyed the movie, but I I, I totally did not get why is this a He Man movie? This is not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not a He Man movie. This is a cool like. You know, one of it fit right in with the sci-fi stuff we rented all the time. That was like you know fairly low budget, but looked pretty decent sci-fi movie. But yeah, no, this was. I, yeah. I did even as a kid. I did have a moment where I was like, "Why is the principal from Back to the Future shooting stormtroopers with a shotgun in this <laughs> He-Man movie?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why well, is the chick from the Dancing in the Dark video with yes. Tila and Man in Arms? <laughs> And Tom Paris, we didn't know at the time, but Tom Tom Paris from Voyager yeah. uh, is the other is the kid, the boy. Yeah. Uh, moving on to actual uh, comics, Thor number three eighty five seems just innocuous enough. It's just a Hulk versus Thor story, but that was an inventory story written by Stan Lee. I have that comic, but I remember the year before on twenty twenty, the old news show on ABC. They had a, a segment on the twenty fifth anniversary of Marvel. Hmm. And and Stan Lee and Jim Shooter were shown discussing this comic on the phone, and you saw them looking over the pages, and it's like drawn by a very young Eric Larson. Yeah. Uh, and and it's like something. There's some. I remember Stan going, "Well, the only thing I noticed is Thor lost his helmet on page two, but he's got it back on page three, or something <laughs> like that." You know, I remember that in my head for some reason. So. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I don't. I, that, I mean, it's just just one of those weird things that sticks in your brain when I should, you know, have more important stuff in there. So, <laughs> I yeah, the cover to this one is actually by Ron Friends, and I really liked Ron Friends's arc uh, on Thor. I just read it recently because he took over after Walt Simonson left, mm-hmm. um, and I think I had read the Walt Simonson giant omnibus a couple of years ago and I kind of felt like, oh man, you can't follow this up with anything. I didn't even want to give the follow-up a chance. But when I finally did, when I saw Friends, I was like, man, Friends is really channeling the best of Jack Kirby's Thor in this. Like, It had all of the energy and the style and a lot of the similar line work of Thor but, or uh, sorry, of Jack Kirby, Um, but it, it still had like a kind of new and a fresh energy and certainly by this point, like you couldn't ask Kirby to do anything like that. But it was, um, oh yeah, I, I really dig like this era of, of Thor too. Like surprisingly, coming off of the Walt Simonson run, but yeah, they they him and Tom DeFalco were definitely dialing things back to like '60s Marvel. I yeah. mean, even the yeah. the cover blurbs and everything. And it and and a few issues from now, folks, this is where Cap first wields Mjolnir. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, that he's the captain at that point. But that, and it blew my young mind, and that's why. Chris Franklin jumped up in the theater <laughs> in Endgame and went, yeah, when it had literally got up out of my seat and fist bumped. I did. I, I, and I don't, I don't regret it. So, <laughs> Speaking of which, do you want to take this opportunity on the podcast to thank me for something? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. That would be very nice. By the time you read this, this has been on my show for like six months. Uh, or not the time you hear this. But Ryan was nice enough. He knew I was hunting for the exclusive – Marvel Legends, Walmart only, Captain America in-game figure that comes with Mjolnir, and it's like packed in behind his shield, so in case you hadn't seen the movie, it won't spoil it for you, but I haven't been able to find this thing anywhere, and it's going for nutty amounts of money on eBay, and Ryan was nice enough to say, hey, I found this. You want me to pick it up for you? And I was at Kings Island in Ohio riding rides, but I'm like, oh, yes, please, if you're still there, get it, or you know, if you're going back later, check again, and... So, so thank you very much. I was I was on my way home when I got the text. And I was like, oh shit! I like turn. I didn't quite do a U turn, but I did like turn around. Oh, you back. went back. I didn't know you did that. No, thank it was you. fine because I knew like I'd also seen like the local comic store here had two versions of the toy for going for like forty or forty five bucks, and I was like, oh my god, I'm not paying that much. But yeah, yeah like if I could get it for like the, the Walmart price, that's no problem. So yeah, happy to do it. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I, I, it's it's an awesome figure, by the way. It's yeah. just like I mean, the Marvel Legends are always great, but Andrew's been collecting those things for years, and I've kind of just picked up a few here and there, but they keep pulling me closer and closer in. Like, ooh, that's – I think it's because there's like a lack of good DC toys for the most part out there <laughs> right now that you can buy at retail, and I'm just like, ooh, I'm so tempted, you know, but oh, – well, but yeah. They're doing that like this is their 80th anniversary wave, so I know they're releasing another Captain America this year that I've got my uh, targets on, and it's yep. like an Alex Ross style version. It's uh, I yep. don't know if it's quite that, but it, yeah, it's similar to that. It, it no, it's Alex good. Ross. It's yeah. an Alex Ross Cap, Thor, and Iron Man coming yeah. out. Yeah, I'm looking for yeah. all of those. I I wish I wish the blue in the Captain America costume was a little bit brighter. But mm-hmm. I, I still think it's going to be worth it to get. So. Yeah, Alex Ross tends to go real dark. With I guess he figures the the, the blue and the American flag's really dark. So yeah, yeah. That's what that's his aesthetic thinking. But uh, yeah, I want that. I want there's a cap on the the. Even though I'm not a fan of the the portrayal of the Ultimates cap, I like that World War II design. Oh yeah, cap yeah. Inspired the movie. There's a version of him that comes with a motorcycle. Yep. Uh, and there's also a, a, a two pack with Peggy. 
Oh, the two pack with Peggy. That's got to happen. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that was a, really... that's a me and Cindy. Uh, you know, the, that's our our two. We got to get that. We got you know definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it's him from the the first Avenger when he goes on his first mission where he's wearing like the brown leather jacket over like the <laughs> the cheap uh, prop the cheap propaganda like costume shirt and everything like that. And then, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we probably better talk about Batman comics, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we've been talking long enough, so let's take a short little uh, promo break right now, and when we come back, I will tell you all about Batman 413. Stick around. If you rebuild it, they will come. They burned it down. If you rebuild it, they will come. You didn't hear them? Thank you, pardon. The voices. Pete. They blew it up. If you rebuild it, they They demolished it. If you rebuild it, they will come. But horror has a permanent address. Welcome to my home. The House of Frankenstein lives! You see, uh, we began a project a few years ago, but unfortunately it was... It was interrupted. And we're most anxious to... Take it up again. In September and October, the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents a Supermates tradition covering four classic horror films and four related comic book adventures. I must find more victims before my work is done. You need look no further, Vampirus. We'll take the bat jet to the Hall of Justice and transform the other super friends. <laughs> Featuring an all-star cast. James Spader. Are you crazy? Jack Nicholson. Oh, just marking my territory. Anthony Hopkins. She lives beyond the grace of God. A wanderer in the outer darkness. Lon Chaney Jr. One becomes accustomed to the darkness here. Michelle Pfeiffer. You're afraid that when it gets dark, you'll attack me. Vincent Price. Let's uh, see what the rest of this mausoleum looks like. Gary Oldman. Enters freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Winona Ryder. I almost feel pity for anything so hunted as this count. Peter Cushing. I am a doctor. Of medicine, law, and physics, to the best of my knowledge, doctorates are not awarded for witchcraft. But if ever they are, no doubt I shall qualify for one. And Keanu Reeves. Doctor! This Halloween, visit our field of screams at the scenic House of Frankenstein, where terror is only a listen away. Batman 413 has a November 1987 cover date, but according to some guy named Mike, it actually went on sale August 11th that year. The cover, holy crap, is penciled by Ed Hannigan with inks by Walt Simonson. Said cover shows what looks to be a samurai warrior decked out in traditional feudal Japanese armor. The samurai has two swords drawn and is preparing to fight the Batman, whose silhouette we see on the wall of what looks maybe like an Asian garden behind the warrior. Uh, what do you think of this cover? I hate to be contrarian here, but I don't really like this cover all that well. I really don't. I mean, I, I know that might be shocking, and it's 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 Walt Simonson inking it, uh, and I like Ed Hannigan stuff for the most part. But I don't know. It's just like the face on the samurai. It's like it's like I don't know. It's like Simonson inked it like with a real heavy like almost like a marker almost it seems yeah. like it's just it's just I don't know. I think a part of it too is the coloring, the oranges I, and yes. the yellows. They, they, he looks like one of those Predacons from Transformers. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yes, he does have the same color. The red, yeah, orange, and yellow. The whole red, red, orange, and yellow everywhere. Yeah, it's just. I, I mean, I hate to say that. I love these guys' art. I mean, Simonson is a god, but I just, you know, I just don't particularly care for this cover. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh man, God, I, I'm not going to be able to not see that now with the Predacons because of how like thick and blocky Simonson makes everything. <laughs> yeah, it he merges. Look, it looks like he a merges robot. to form whatever. What was the name of their their merge bot? I can't think. Their the, gestalt. The gestalt one was Preda King, which is not Preda King. Terrible. Yeah, not I had. Yeah, it's I had that. Clever, but yeah. yeah, yeah. The samurai transforms into like a Bengal tiger. <laughs> um, I agree. I don't like the colors with like the monochromatic but really warm samurai armor, and then like all the cool blue and purple like background and everything. It looks really busy in the background with like the whole garden motif. I think if it actually would have been like a flat, almost no background. Um, this might have worked better with just the silhouette. I, I like that, but I think the, the two monochromatic images tend to kind of like blur and wash each other out. So I think a black and white version of this would look better than the color version. Mm-hmm. And I really just think you could have saved it by just like taking out the, the busyness of that background design. If it was just the samurai and the bat silhouette against a flat background, I think it would have been better. Yeah, I, I guess maybe it's supposed to be like a screen that's got the tree yeah, and yeah, the yeah. It has the... lady's face painted on it over in the upper right-hand corner. But yeah, it, it's a little. I agree, it's a little busy, and and the color, the color, the color makes the guy pop out, but it's just it's it's too garish. The samurai, yeah. it's just I don't, yeah. I'm sorry, folks. I I hate to. I don't think I ever thought I'd bag on anything by Walt Simonson, but I have to be honest. I as a kid, even I didn't like this cover. So yeah. <laughs> it should be great, but it's not. Yeah. Right. All right. Getting into it. The story is called "The Ghost of Masahiko Tahara." It is written by Mary Jo Duffy, penciled by Kieran Dwyer, inked by Mike DiCarlo, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. A Japanese criminal named Toshihiko Kikawa is visiting Gotham for the first time when he spots Batman swinging through the skies overhead. Kikawa ducks into an alley, but the Dark Knight is waiting for him. They fight, briefly, and Kikawa coughs up some intel about a robbery planned for the Metropolitan Museum of Gotham. Batman tells Kikawa to stay clean or get out of his city. The next day, the museum unveils the Masahiko Tahara exhibit of ancient Japanese cultural artifacts and weapons. The Taharas were one of the most powerful clans in feudal Japan until the leader, Masahiko, and his family committed suicide after a terrible defeat. According to legend, though, one of Masahiko's sons survived, adopted the guise of a ninja, and launched a vigilante war on the enemies of the Tahara clan. Today, the exhibit is on loan to the Gotham Museum through an arrangement between the last surviving member, Yoshio Tahara, and the museum's curator, Dr. Lucius Pitt. Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd each attend the exhibit's debut separately, Jason as part of a school field trip, and Bruce to scout the area in anticipation of the robbery Kikawa told him about. That night, one of the museum's security guards witnesses the armor of Masahiko Tahara seemingly come to life and start moving. The guard panics and runs, nearly knocking himself out. When the police arrive to investigate, they find that nothing in the museum has been taken or disturbed, and they're disinclined to believe the guard's story about a samurai ghost. 
The night after that, Batman and Robin are surveilling the museum when the curator leaves. A gang of street punks surround Dr. Pitt, and the dynamic duo moves in to defend him. But even before they do, the so-called Ghost of Tahara intervenes, fighting off one of the punks with a naginata, which is a long pole weapon with a blade at the end. Once Batman and Robin enter the fray, the ghost runs back into the museum. Robin is about to follow it when Dr. Pitt falls to the ground with chest pain, needing his heart medication. Instead, Batman follows the samurai into the museum, but discovers the armor back in the exhibit and nothing else disturbed. Nothing that he sees, anyway. Robin, however, thinks something about one of the other displays is off. Later, Batman goes to the dojo of Yoshio Tahara and challenges him to a fight. Batman defeats Yoshio easily, and leaves the dojo claiming to have learned something valuable. The next night, Batman goes to the museum to look over the exhibits with the curator, Dr. Pitt. Suddenly, the ghost of Tahara attacks Batman, this time with two swords. Dr. Pitt pulls a gun out of his briefcase and points it at... the Batman? Before he can shoot, a throwing star strikes his hand, causing him to drop the gun. Pitt looks up to see the masked ninja Koji Tahara. Batman effortlessly takes down the samurai, revealing the ghost to be Yoshio Tahara. Oh, and the ghost of Koji is actually... Robin? So, Batman deduced that the samurai was actually Yoshio from their fighting styles, and the whole ghost thing was just a ruse put up by Yoshio and Dr. Pitt working together. While all the attention was on the Tahara exhibits, the two of them were quietly robbing the other museum artifacts, something only Robin noticed while comparing exhibits as Jason Todd and Robin. That was the story from Batman 413. Chris, what did you think? And they wouldn't have got away with it, too, if it wasn't for that meddling kid. (laughs) (laughs) No, I actually like this one. Right out of the gate, the art is a huge improvement over the last several issues. Yeah, I uh, I mean, this is and this is Kieran Dwyer's first professional work. Mm -hmm. I mean, Denny Denny O'Neill points that out in the from the den column. But it's very competent. And most importantly, it's actually visually exciting. I, I, I can't tell you how it's such a breath of fresh air in the Batman title because we've had such stiff art. And, and I mean, even though we had guys like, you know, we had Dave Cockrum, but it was just so stiff and coloring book and just, yeah, I, I really, I really dig this art. I do too. And it's wonderful to, to like a story and also so frustrating because as you, get, as you pointed out uh, in the in Denny O'Neill's letters from the Den column at the back, he mentions that this was basically an inventory story that he got Joe Duffy to write a Batman story at some point, um, which he, he mentioned that she was his editor. He was also her editor on uh, Power Man and Iron Fist. And mm-hmm. I've been reading some of her issues of that lately, and it's really, really good. And I keep thinking, I was like, between this and having that past experience, I was like, Denny, why didn't you just hire Mary Jo Duffy to begin with and forget about Max Allen Collins? We could have had a year or more of great stories like this. And even if you don't think this is great, just by, by compared to what Max Allen Collins did, it's leaps and bounds. This is like, holy great. It's like, Oh yeah. So there's that for one thing is frustrating, but then yeah, like he's like he he discovered Kieran Dwyer and this guy has never done anything, but he asked Mary Jo, he's like, do you mind if I attach an unproven, untested artist to your to your script? And she's like, yeah, I don't care, whatever. 
But after this, uh, Dwyer went to Marvel. He did an issue of Solo Avengers where he did a Monica Rambeau backup story that I really like. Then, right after that, he took over the Captain America book right in the middle of the Captain story. Um, mm-hmm. Cap was in the, the black costume from, during the Grunewald run uh, when John Walker had taken over as Captain America. And he was on that book for a little while. And then, it, I mean, we will see, <laughs> who knows how long it'll take us to get there, but Kieran Dwyer came back in 1990 for the three-part story, Dark Knight, Dark City, in, mm-hmm. in issues of Batman, which I have always loved because, A, it was right around the time when I started collecting Batman monthly, when I was going to the Eagle grocery store and getting them off the, off the stands. Um, it's also one of my favorite Riddler stories, so I love that one. It's a mm-hmm. Peter Milligan story with covers by uh, Mike Mignola. And then later in the early 2000s, Kieran Dwyer took over the end of the Kang Dynasty story that concluded Kurt Busiek's run on the Avengers. And that was right around the time when I started getting into the Avengers, <laughs> like just before, <laughs> just before Disassembled. So I'm like, oh man, I really like this artist. And like seeing this here as his first work, I'm like, why did we suffer through the bloodless Dave Cockrum and Ross Andrew books of when, when this guy was available? And, and, ah, gosh, I, I know after this we're gonna get Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo, but I would have taken more of this. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, I mean exactly. Yeah, again, the story isn't mind blowing, but it's just so much better than what we've seen. There, there's nothing in it that jumps out at you and just like, okay, that's. I mean, the one thing that might be Batman gives the guy his knife back at this story, but he's <laughs> he's he's pretty much just shown this. Like, look, you're not going to get anywhere in my city. So, I mean, you get the idea. The guy hopped on the bus, took a plane, and got out of there. You know, right? Uh, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's so so much better. It's it's so much more competent. It's just it's it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. The the mystery really isn't. I mean, there there really can be nobody else that's that's being the ghost. But right. I mean, they don't build it that way. It's basically like you know it, but how are Batman and Robin going to figure it out? You know. Mm-hmm. And I like the fact that Robin like basically solves the mystery and saves the day. This is one of the the best showings Jason Todd has had as Robin, especially uh, post New Origin reveal. Which is weird because we got to, you know, every, every, other than Batman 400, I guess every Robin that we've dealt with has been the post crisis Jason Todd. <laughs> Supposedly, we just didn't know it. I, I'm still not convinced the Alan Davis, uh, uh, you know, Mike W. Barr stories with Alan Davis were that Robin until right. they said it was. But yeah, I mean, this is just, it, it's, it's just, it's so much better. And I love Dwyer's, ba- I mean, Dwyer's Batman is like fully formed here. I mean, his Batman looks a little different when he comes back from, for Dark Knight, Dark City, but it's very, I mean, he puts the effort into, you know, you know, when he's drawing Batman, he thinks Batman's cool yeah. and he's put the effort into making him look cool. And, um, his, uh, Dwyer's stepdad at one point, I think when he got into comics was John Byrne. Okay. And, and uh, there's a little bit of John Byrne's Batman in a few panels you can see. Yeah, yeah. But but other than that, it's his own thing, and he's he's got kind of a unique take, but it still looks good. It looks like you know a good '80s uh, Batman, and I like his Robin. His Robin, the the way he drew Robin's mask. His mask is like bigger than most people draw it on his face. Yep. And, and I kind of like I like that look, and I. And I, I think I kind of influenced how I drew Robin, just to kind of I stuck with a bigger mask every time because so this I mean this one issue was just like man who is this guy where did he come from and then 
I was reading Captain America, so when he took over Captain America, I'm like, all right, it's the guy from that Batman issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he did some great stuff there. He got into the, you know, the and he took after the the Captain storyline ended and Steve became Captain America again. They did the whole Bloodstone saga, and mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, he stayed he stayed on for what like thirty some close to thirty issues of Captain America, so. He had a really strong run on on Captain America and introduced Crossbones. Uh, yeah. I guess he's the co-creator Crossbones, so hopefully he's getting some of that MCU money. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's heard them using him, and he keeps showing up. Uh, so so good on him. But yeah, I've always really enjoyed his stuff, and I mean he his style changed, but he was very competent right out of the gate, and this right. show proves it. Yeah, yeah, he does. Uh, yeah, I I like this. I like the art. Um, on page four. There are two things on this page that I love. Uh, the first one is the the silent panel, um, the, the third panel, or whatever. It's just like Kiko is like he's like it's a there's just I'm just here on vacation and it's just Batman just staring at him. He's like all right, all right, yeah. I'll tell you what I heard and everything. I love that <laughs> just like that little grimace that he's given him that silent panel. I can sort of see a John Byrne influence there with that one. But right before that, on the t- on the first panel of page four, when he Kiko is like thrown on the gr- on the in the trash, and Batman's holding the knife that he was using, he goes, "I haven't done anything." And Batman says, "You have now. Try assault with a deadly weapon." <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing: a, a giant dude dressed in a bat costume approached this guy in an alley and put his hand on him. I think any lawyer in the world could get him off on self-defense. Like, if somebody so. dressed as a Batman puts their hands on you in a dark alley, you can use a chainsaw or a rocket launcher or whatever. It doesn't matter. I, I think you're, <laughs> you're justified in saying, that was self-defense. I thought this guy was going to kill me. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, yeah. yeah. It's a, maybe this is the, the Mike W. Barr Batman that's trying to, uh, so you know... he's scary, yeah. Yeah, he's literally, you know, putting, you know, he's threatening him with legal action or throwing him in prison just to get information out of him. You know, it's like, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought, I kind of thought the same thing. It's like, well, Batman, you know, I know the guy's kind of on several wanted lists, you know, wanted, you know, by this and for questioning and, but, you know, you did just sneak up on him. But, but, but Batman, but on the other hand, Batman lets him go, which right. is like, if he's wanted by all these organizations, why did you let him go? You know, it's, <laughs> I, you know Batman. I mean, I guess show you know Batman, and and we're in the era where Batman is much less concerned with the law than justice. You know, at this point, so uh, yeah, the Batman of the seventies or definitely of the sixties and be, before would have uh, made sure he got arrested. But yeah, yes. so. <laughs> I like the look and the design of the ninja. It's just very simple, just the the black costume. But I've always really liked the look and the style of like Japanese, like oni or demon masks and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think just the like the the black bodysuit ninja costume with that demon mask and the weapons. I think is just a really cool look and design for a villain. I think you could have brought that back a couple of times, or, or you know, create a new character that has that gimmick. Um, Basically adapt the the ninja from the animated series character and bring him into the main DC universe and give him this look. I think that would have been great. Well, I think you know they could have done a lot with the uh, the mask of Tengu that Bruce Wayne wears in Nightfall. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Night, nights in when he's training and 
you know, they made an action figure of that, and DC Collectibles did that. That's a sharp looking design. I think yeah, they could have forgot about that one too. They could have done a lot with that and had somebody else adopt that and become some side bat character. You know, I don't, you know. So <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't. Honestly, it seems what they do every time. But you know, it's <laughs> it's a cool alternate yeah. alternate look for Batman too. Yeah. Yeah, this this uh, one thing I, I mean one thing I did notice is Jason seems more studious in this one than you know he's like actually concerned about his schoolwork and you know this is a big departure from the characterization of Jason we're going to get pretty soon once Starlin right. uh, comes on board because Starlin steers right into the whole uh, street punk uh, attitude which I mean honestly I got to give Starlin credit he's he's like okay they made this guy a street kid who lived on his own for years you know he wouldn't be gee whiz Burt Ward clone he'd be mm. <laughs> he'd be pretty he'd be pretty surly and 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 street smart and uh uh this J- this Jason here's a little more you know Dick Grayson light but that's the way he's been portrayed so yeah I was actually going to say it, you could have just changed the script done a word replace thing and just called this Jason Dick instead and you would have thought that this was just a you know a one-off story from you know 1980 or something instead of you know Right, it's just like most of the the bar the bar stuff. Right, I mean, right. It's like it's all it's all you know. Jason's characterization is classic Robin. There's no, uh, you know, like I said, you know, um, even Collins beyond the rage over Two Face didn't, you know, beyond the first storyline didn't bother to give Jason a a different personality. Really, you know, right. it's so I, I can't I can't blame Mary Jo Duffy for for not doing that because she was just following you know the way he was being portrayed in the other comics and who knows when she wrote this. You know, at what point was Jason's origin confirmed as being new? So, but uh, but I, I thought, you know, not to keep bagging on Collins, but like in one issue, she got the characters down more consistently than he did over what what nine or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So. Eight, eight stories, yeah. I agree, and again, I think it's. I mean, she was she had been in the business long. She'd been at DC and Marvel. She'd been working for these companies as an editor and as a writer. Yeah. And again, I say like, I mean, if you haven't, I recommend people check out. I mean, she did. She was working on Star Wars, but like, yeah, yeah she had a good long run on Power Man and Iron Fist. She gets street level characters, crime drama, martial arts, action scenes, stuff like this. I mean, I, gosh, I I just I mean. Like no knowing that, like on her resume, like when when Denny first came to DC to edit these books, I would have poached her then. I would have said, "Come with me, take over Batman. We're going to interrupt you to do this Frank Miller miniseries, but then come right back and, and take over." And, yeah, gosh. I mean, it, yeah, why not? And and he did. I mean, several years from now, he taps her to launch the Catwoman book. Right, uh, right, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So she, she's, she's, you know, it's like, but why didn't you use her more? <laughs> <laughs> She will come back, and he mentions that she'll come back. She, I think she does the detective issue, the tie-in to Millennium yeah. in like two months. But, yeah, which is drawn by Norm Brayfogle, so that'll right, be a good combo. Right, right that'll be yeah. the next time we see him. So, Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just we, we needed more Mary Jo Duffy on – Yep. These Batman titles, man. What's 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 up, Denny? Come on, you know if you had that, you had her on speed dial. You should have called her. <laughs> I mean, other than that, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, for for a first time out, the art is really. I I, I mean, is it groundbreaking? Is it earth shattering? No, but it's it's competent. It has an energy that we haven't seen in the book for a little while. Yes. I think. The way he depicts the characters of both Batman and Robin look good. They look true to themselves, true to the spirit of the characters. 
Um, there's there's nothing that kind of sticks out, like wonky anatomy and stuff like that. It looks of the piece, but I mean, you're right. I mean, I see I see flashes of John Byrne. I see flashes of Alan Davis, and these are good things. And I'm like, yeah, gosh, why did you let him go after just one one issue too? Because as much as we love Jim Aparo. I mean, I think we both agree that, you know, Jim Aparo in the late 80s and 90s inked by Mike DiCarlo is not the same as, you know, Brave and the Bold Jim Aparo. So. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's that's one thing. Mike DiCarlo, for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's is it Dwyer, like, because he was a new guy, he penciled he penciled this maybe, like, really tight because he was trying to prove himself, you know. And, yeah. And young artists tend to, to do more. They don't, you know, as the more artists go along, they do looser and looser pencils to the point where they're almost just breakdowns for some artists sure. but i don't see de carlo's overly oppressive inks as much on this i mean i see his i see his style but i see dwyer coming through knowing what dwyer was doing it on captain america at the time i can tell that's his art yep. which with jim apero it's like I, I can still tell it's jim apero but it's like you know he inked his own stuff for so long it's just this you know dc just they wanted to put these heavy-handed inkers on him and I and I will and I I'm like one of the people that I, I, I he is not at his peak like he was on 70s Brave and the Bold, but I think Apparel was a stronger penciler still and artist still than people give him credit for because DC kept putting these overpowered inkers that didn't really mesh with him because there's an issue that Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number One has a sequence that he drew with Batman and the Joker that he inked himself and it looks a whole lot better. Than yeah. almost every other art he did around that period. Yeah. So I, I think you know for whatever reason DC just like oh we got to give Jim an inker and they just gave him the wrong inker. Bill Sinkovich and him oh god no I'm sorry <laughs> I do not like that combination. No yeah. I'm I'm sorry that's that's like mixing motor oil and peanut butter. It just does not you know it's just like no. <laughs> So, not familiar with that combination. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> That's I get, what I'm saying. I get the point. I get, I get where you're going. Over. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, it's uh, gosh, it's it's such a refreshing take to read a Batman story and be like, hey, that was good. That was fun. And nothing about that felt overly juvenile or stupid. <laughs> Just and yeah, no, yeah, it was it was really nice. So, as much as I would have liked this creative team to stay on board for a little bit longer. Uh, we do see that the next issue begins the run by uh, uh, Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo. That is going to take us through one of the, at least one of the more famous Batman stories uh, in history. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm not. It's not. I don't think I would have traded this for that, but I would have definitely traded the Collins run for this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> any day. Any day. <laughs> Any final thoughts on Batman four thirteen? No, I think we've. I think it's you know. I mean, it's 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 one of those stories that really doesn't. I mean, your synopsis pretty much covers it so well that I mean, there's not a lot to overly examine. It's right. a, it's a neat little one and done mystery. It's not really that much of a mystery because really there can only be one person. That's Tahara can right. can only be the the guy that's being the ghost. Uh, the fact that Pitt is in on it with him is a little you know is a nice little wrinkle, but. It you know it it, it yeah. does have that you know it's the same type of mystery that Scooby Doo uh, made a uh, made a career out of yeah. uh, you know <laughs> but but it, it uh, uh, it's it's fun it's just a fun little story and Robin Robin really 
Jason Todd really comes across really well. Yeah, uh, serious. He, he's like, yeah, he's like a, a competent sidekick and, and somebody who's looking at this from a different perspective. Because I like it. They do. It, it would be a pretty simple mystery, but like they do kind of give it the twist that oh, there's this brand new art exhibit. Well, that's not what's being robbed. That's not the right. target. That's the distraction, and it's right. the other stuff that's being robbed. That I I kind of like that that little spin on it, and I like that that Duffy brought in a little bit of, you know, like an exotic culture into this world of Batman and Robin. I think that's kind of cool. So, yep. All right. Well, folks, we are going to take another promo break and we will come back again with detective comics. Number 580 stick around for that. The world's strongest hero, the warrior from a hidden Island, the master of super speed, the wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. Coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Comics number 580 was, of course, cover dated November 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Everything, it went on sale August 25th, 1987. On this cover by Jerry Bingham, a large symbolic image of Two-Face flips his coin while Batman and Robin are thrown from an exploding train car speeding down the tracks through Gotham City. So what do you think of this cover, Ryan? I like it. Um, there's a lot I like about it. And for one thing, I, I will just say, like, I really like Jerry Bingham. Uh, his style, I think, is really suited for Batman. I wish he was doing more Batman and more than just this cover. As we will see next episode, though, he was busy uh, mm-hmm. with something else Batman-related. But yeah, I, I like the cover. 
Um, the one thing I don't like is how much attention seems to be on just the blank kind of yellowish white of the exploding train car. Mm. Um, it, mm. It's just like a big sort of splotch of nothing right in the middle of it. For some reason, that draws some of my attention. But I like his Two-Face. I like Batman and Robin. It, it's really good. And Jerry Bingham, I mean, I've, I've known who he was because of, I've seen other like stuff. But I remember as far back as when I was doing the secret origin of um, Shazam! <laughs> and, yes. I have to insert Q. Um <laughs> Uh, that issue, I remember talking to Nathaniel Wayne. I was like, I really like this artist. I don't think he's the best fit for Captain Marvel. I think he's no. really good for somebody like Batman or a more kind of darker, the type of character that you see kind of grittier and heavier shadows. Yeah, that's that's my thought. What do you think about the cover? I, I really like it. I hadn't really thought about the yellow, but now that you say that, it, it looks like the colorist kind of let um, let uh, Bingham down. We're, we're bagging on the colorist on these covers. I don't know who the, the cover colorist on these comics were. Uh, but yeah, I think they if they, it should have had more of a gradient or something mm-hmm. than just going from yellow to white. It's like kind of a yellow in the middle and kind of going a little lighter as it goes out. It probably looked like more impressive, like in black and white. And then when they, you know, with with Bingham expecting them to add more gradation in the in the color. But I, I really dig it. I think it's a you see this cover pop up a lot when they're you know two faces shown in in like articles and stuff. It's a <clears throat> excuse me, really strong two face cover. The only thing is Robin looks more like um, Dick Grayson than Jason Todd. But, um, yeah, it's it's really sharp. I think the new trade dress up top, the new logo works well, although I miss the old Detective Comics logo. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's a pretty sharp color a cover. I think it would make you pick it up off the stands, even though, as a Batman fan, just a few months ago, you saw Two-Face on covers, too, in Batman. Uh <laughs> Which we'll get into. Uh, <laughs> you're seeing double uh, again. Uh, 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 so uh, moving on to the story, Double Image uh, was written by Mike W. Barr. The artist was Jim Bakey. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, letter was Annie Half a. How do you say that? Half a Cree. Half a. Don't it know looks like that. Half Acre with an extra E on it. Half Acrey, yeah. Annie, <laughs> Annie Half Acrey. Uh, colorist was Adrian Roy. We know who that is. And the editor was Denny O'Neill. A man awakens in a seedy hotel room, disoriented and confused by his location and the fact that his head is completely covered in bandages. Taking them off, he looks into the mirror and declares, My face! I thought it was over! A forgotten dream! But it's true! In a nearby closet, he finds the clothes to match that face. And inside the pocket, a coin. Flipping the two-headed silver dollar, it lands on the scarred side, and the man follows that decision. He will once more be known as Two-Face. Two-Face and his gang of twin crooks then appear at a party thrown by renowned sculptor Kyle Braxton, but fortunately, Batman and Robin also crash the party. The dynamic duo take out Two-Face's goons, but Robin's thirst for vengeance against the man who murdered his father makes him clumsy, and the bifurcated madman manages to temporarily take the boy wonder hostage, then escape. Batman chastises his young charge, who points out that Batman never lets such thoughts get the best of him. Uh huh. Later in Gotham, <laughs> later in Commissioner Gordon's office, Batman admits he and Robin just stumbled on the robbery tonight on patrol, looking for the escaped Two Face. With hits at a sculptor's party and an impressionist club, Batman and Gordon are unable to figure out how Two Face's latest crime spree fits his usual pattern of crimes based on the number two. Robin looks over some old case photos, including one of Two-Face blasting at Batman and the original Robin with a double-barreled shotgun. 
Batman laments the loss of his old friend Harvey Dent once more as he and Robin take their leave. The following night, Two-Face attempts to rob the Gotham Mirror Works. Is that run by Max Romero? Only to be startled by giant images of Batman and Robin. It's all done with mirrors, and the Cape Crusaders soon set after Two-Face and his gang. Batman sees the madman reflected in a mirror and has an epiphany, but almost gets his head blown off, if not for the timely intervention of Robin. As their foe escapes in a two-toned car, Batman notes their quarry has Two-Face's methods down. He then explains to Robin that this isn't the original Two-Face. He points out to his junior partner how Two-Face has been carrying his shotgun in his left hand, whereas Harvey Dent always carried weapons in his right, as seen in the picture Robin was examining earlier. Batman calls Gordon to see if a missing person report was turned in on Paul Sloan. Gordon confirms it has, and The Dark Knight relates how Sloan was once an actor cast to play Two-Face in a television production due to his uncanny resemblance to Harvey Dent. A jealous prop man arranged to have Sloan truly disfigured during the filming of Two-Face's origin scene, replacing the prop water with acid. Sloan succumbed to the shock and apparently deep method acting and took up Two-Face's career. Batman and the original Robin captured him and plastic surgery eventually restored his face. Sloan resumed his normal life and later became a TV producer. Batman and Robin visit Sloan's worried wife who is sickened to learn the kidnapping involves Two-Face. The masked man heard her promises to bring her husband home. At his own home later, Bruce Wayne and Jason Todd discussed a story they and Jim Gordon had planted in the Gotham Gazette. The fake news headline tells of a treasury train carrying two dollar bills earmarked for destruction passing through Gotham. Later at the train yards, Batman and Robin discuss how their ploy may draw out two Two-Faces. Robin questions why Harvey Dent would want to disfigure Sloan's, since he would have to know they would figure he was a fake sooner or later. Batman admits he is worried that OG Two-Face has some hidden scheme he's yet to discern. Sloan doesn't disappoint and sends a two-man train car full of dynamite at the train, derailing it. Instead of -of out-of-circulation $2 bills, he finds Gordon and his men inside, armed and ready for a fight. But Sloan came prepared with a two-toned sonic weapon, whose combined sound attacks the nervous system. The ever-prepared dynamic duo is ready with their earplugs and pursue the false-faced Two-Face. But they all run afoul of the real deal, Harvey Dent himself, who arrives and holds the heroes and his doppelganger at gunpoint. He tells him of how he paid the crime doctor to undo Sloan's plastic surgery, returning him to his most famous role. Dent admits he did it partially out of spite, envious of the life Sloan had built for himself. Sloan refuses to believe he's not the original Two-Face and shoots Dent, Batman, and Robin with tranquilizer darts. His coin lands scarred side up, and Sloan decides to kill his enemies with a two-pronged plan, involving fire and ice. Batman, Robin, and Dent come to in a refrigerated train car with a time bomb about to blow in two minutes. To be continued. Uh, so what did you think of this one, Ryan? Oh, there are two Two-Faces. I get it. <laughs> Three if you count the one that was just in Batman a couple months ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, all right, right out of the gate, where's Norm Brayfogle? Uh, we, we miss We miss him terribly. We wish he would come back. For the art for this one, for Jim Bakey, um, I don't really know him, um, or I'm not that familiar with his work. It's fine. Um, there are a few panels that I actually I really like. I think his style. Something like there, there's something about the way he draws the faces of some characters. There's like an angularness of Two Faces' head, and also Robin's it a few times. It reminds me of I don't know some kind of cartoonist or another popular artist. And I can't pin down who it is. Mm. Um, so this is just me rambling. I, I don't know who it is. But his art reminds me of somebody, but I don't know who. Um, but for the most part, it's fine. And the story, 
it's frustrating seeing Two-Face again right after the last story in Batman when we had a two-part Two-Face story um, and also knowing that Two-Face is going to come back next month because you can't have a Two-Face story that's not in two issues, apparently. Um, what I did like, though, is there was a bit of continuity, maybe for the first time, in that Jason in this story acknowledges that Two-Face killed his dad and he's yeah. upset about that. Um, so they're actually referencing... Mike Barr is actually referencing something that's going on in the other books. However, Jason also rushes in and makes the exact same mistake that he should have learned from in the previous Batman issue where that took place. So it's uh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we go any further, we should probably point out that this story is a sequel of sorts to Batman number 68 from December 1951. In that issue, actor Paul Sloan is turned into not the second, but the third Two-Face after he actually rehabilitated... And his face was restructured. Harvey Dent's butler, Wilkins, tried to drive him insane by posing as Two-Face in Batman number 50 from December 1948. So they cured Two-Face, but they didn't like not having Two-Face in the rogues gallery. Uh, so now they had the butler, but this guy follows the same story. He was an actor portraying Two-Face, jealous prop man, disfigured him, had him disfigured. Uh, the only difference was in the comics at the time, he had jet black hair on both sides as Two-Face, so they should have been able to tell it wasn't Harvey, but uh, now this story retcons out that Dent was rehabilitated during that period, uh, so that means there were actually two Two-Faces while Sloan was Two-Faced the first time, which is, I'm saying Two-Faced so many times in two, it's it's kind of driving me nuts. Uh, I, I like the story, but yeah, it's it just, it, it's another one of those cases Denny should have, like, either scrapped one or the other, or held off one or the other, and not had Two face stories this close together. It's just it's just too close together. I mean, even as a kid buying these off the stands, I'm like Two Face again, really? Right. You know, it's a, you know, I mean, the artwork it's it's competently done. I'm not a real big fan of the style. I, it is a kinetic. It's it's you know, there's the dynamic panel layouts and 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 so in that aspect, I'm just you know, I'm not real crazy about. The guy's style, uh, I don't know a whole lot about him. He was the co-creator artist on Electric Warrior, uh, which had just ended at DC just a, right before this. DC pushed it a lot, you know, advertised it a lot, put it in Who's Who, even though it wasn't in DC Universe. And uh, it just didn't catch on, I guess. Although I think there's like some new kind of Electric Warrior DC did something with recently. That's a book I've never read that. I never had any interest in it because I thought the name Electric Warrior sounded dumb. But yes. I like I've just I've been reading a ton of Doug Munch stuff lately and I kind of like, yeah, maybe I should give that a shot because he was the writer on that too, so Yeah. So so Doug Doug left Batman books, went and did that, and now this artist left that book and went and did Batman, which is <laughs> interesting. But uh yeah. <laughs> so this and I think this and the next issue are his only Batman work, so yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't really know a whole lot about him other than, than that. But I do like the splash page with Two-Face standing in the middle of his divided apartment. Mm -hmm. You know, one side posh, the other is a dump. We've seen that before. There was a cover back in the early 80s by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that's pretty much the same thing. And, but uh, you see Batman and Robin swinging into, uh, toward the windows of the apartment. The only thing is, is that Somebody decided to paste up the actual trademarked uh, style guide art of the bat symbol 
as the bat signal on that on that splash page, and it looks really it looks really tacked on. It looks like somebody took a Batman sticker from 1989 and stuck it on your comic book from 1987. Yeah, it's, because it's in front of a building. It's actually encroaching on front of like a building's like a corner of the building and everything. So it's not in the sky. It wouldn't be on the clouds that way. Yeah, it's, it's even bumping up over the the, the into the, the border, column, yeah, yeah. the border of the yeah. So it's like. I don't know who did, whoever did that in post really. No, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the opening sequence. This just shows you how these 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 old school comic writers could pack so much story. And the opening sequence nowadays with Sloan waking up in this dingy hotel room, it would take a whole issue for him to get up, go to the mirror, be all freaked out for like half the half the book. The last half would be an internal monologue as he slowly unbandages himself. Right, and right. the last page would be the reveal that he's two-faced, and then you'd have next issue, you know, right. uh, the next issue blurb. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's in a page. He wakes up. He's scarred. He finds the suit, finds a coin. He's two-faced. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's – here we go. But – and, yeah, you're right. Jason should have known – should have learned from his mistake. And, I mean – I mean, honestly, if you take, you know, if you're Jim Starlin, and and I'm sure Denny, and I interviewed Jim Starlin about Robin, so for back issues, so we'll have to bring that up when Starlin comes on board. But he did not like the character of Robin. He certainly didn't like this a second Robin. And you're you're him. You've already got a mat on about Robin. You don't like him, and then you're get probably given the recent comics, and he's reads probably you know the Max Allen Collins stuff and then this and he's like oh well he you know he's irrational when it comes to Two-Face so right. you know he's starting to build a case against Jason Todd you know <laughs> <laughs> the mm-hmm. fact that he didn't learn from his mistake I mean that's good continuity but like you said it's like he didn't you know he, he could have said well I'm not going to do what I did last time you right. know right. Uh, that would have been a nod to that as well but uh, yeah but I do like that Robin sarcastically mentions that Batman doesn't let his demons get the best of him you know yeah, yeah. I, that was a nice like throw yeah yeah you're a real <laughs> you're a real good role model in that department Bruce right. you know <laughs> <laughs> on page four uh, Two-Face shoots the head off of the sculpture or whatever and then his guys have Batman pinned down Batman runs out grabs the head from the sculpture this broken off head and throws it like a baseball. It knocks out like one of the guys and knocks him into the other one of the goons, the twins that Two Face is using. That statue, like assuming that's marble or something, would be really heavy for Batman to throw one-handed. And then if it did hit this guy in like the chest or the head or something, like you're talking, like this is gonna crack this guy's head open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty rough. Yeah, I I, I want to make an observation though, because Gotham has a large population of criminally minded twins. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> because every time we see Two Face, he usually has a gang of several sets of twins, and it's never the same set of twins. It's always different twins. So he had like four sets of twins just in the last two Batman issues. Yeah. Right. So he's got I don't know how many here. They 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 wrap they round up the the gang each time, and he's got more, and they're always twins. It's like. I mean, did he? He's recruiting them across the country, across the world, because surely they didn't all come from Gotham. Because it's like, and they're both like both twins 
are like, you know, yeah, I'm in for, you know, robbing, killing, whatever, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I'm not doing that, you know. It's like, I mean, they're all in, you know. So it's like, uh, you know, it's like they share one brain or something. It's <laughs> it's just uh, identical twins are rare enough, but criminal identical twins, that's, you know, uh, you know, I, it's it's one of those old tropes that, I mean, even the animated series gives, uh, yeah. you know, in the first Two-Face story, it's uh, twins voiced by Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. Oh, uh, <laughs> which is weird, <laughs> but uh, but he does a good job. It's just kind of oh, it's Mickey from the Monkees. Okay, I guess uh, <laughs> I guess for twins, it's job security. No matter what's going on with the economy, you can always go to work for Two Face. I, I guess so. Yeah, it's like it's like well, we're twins. What are we gonna do? I don't know. Work for Two Face, like being <laughs> double mint commercials. I don't. Yeah, uh, nah, let's go work for Two Face. You know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, when they, you know, we get to the part where uh, they're at the mirror, uh, the mirror factory, uh, <laughs> uh, Max. Uh, but uh, the large figures of Batman and Robin on page eight are a nice visual. But I, I give them points for putting Robin's R insignia reversed and on the wrong side of his tunic, since it is a reflection, which is a giveaway that it's a reflection. But it's a nice little visual there. So, but uh, here's there here's the thing, like. We see that part, and like Two Face shoots at the mirror and everything. But then, let me see what page. What page is it? Yeah, on page ten, we all of a sudden jump to a set of twins has Robin by the wrists and ankles, yep. getting ready to throw him into the molten glass. Where did that come from? <laughs> we just skipped over one half of the action. We're just like, yep, Batman's <laughs> taking out his guy. What's going on with Robin? Oh, he's already been captured. He's about to be thrown into molten glass from his death. Was, yeah, yep. I, I caught that too. I was like, that was a r- abrupt transition. I mean, I get it. There's a fight. There's stuff going on. But like, show him like getting like grabbed or something. And, yeah, I mean, you know, even on the on the Batman, t- the old Batman TV show, a lot of times. That would happen, but you'd see the guys grab Robin, right. and then and then Batman would be fighting whoever, and then he noticed Robin, and then he'd you know swing over and save him or something. Of course, Robin saves himself, so I give him points for that. But yeah, it's just like I went back and looked. Am I missing a page? Did a page yeah. come out of this book? And it's like no, it went from nine to ten, and all of a sudden Robin's just being <laughs> held over a bolting glass. So uh. <laughs> no, I have to. I have to mention a big issue that I had with this story. Okay. Um, and it has to do with the nature of two-faced stories and the the compulsion that writers have, and also with Barr's sort of approach to this, to style like making these sort of like grown-up versions of the old Batman TV show. Mm-hmm. The double wordplay and the use of puns and everything like that. It got old, and forgive me for this, but it got old, like, the second time I saw it in the story. Yeah. And I was already getting a headache, and it kept coming back again and again and again. And I was like, it's stories like this that is going to make me hate Two-Face, because I'm never going to want to see another Two-Face story, because this is how it gets written. Everybody has to make the puns, everybody has to use the wordplay. Yeah, it's like there's there's two ways to do a two face story. There's this way, and then there's the horrible. You know, he's cured, but the that like he cuts his face back up and all. You know, like James Robinson did when right, he did right. the one year later. There's like there's no is there an in between somewhere with two face? You know, it's it, it, it they go one one extreme or the other. Yeah, it, it it I think part of it too is it's not probably that different than the other bar scripts for detective, but we don't have Alan Davis. 
uh, his art there to it, it was so fun and you could tell he was enjoying and, and he'd have he'd have Robin with that you know that devilish little grin on his yeah, face yeah, yeah. and look like a little pixie and it, and it made it it made it more palatable that uh, the puns and things it's just with this artwork it just doesn't quite mesh and so it stands out and one, one another thing that I'm I know we're dealing with comics here but this is one gripe I got so you know, the world's greatest detective, he should have known instantly that this wasn't Harvey Dent from the moment they first encountered him uh-huh. at the sculptor's party. His face can't be that identical to Dent's, and his height, weight, body language, etc., is probably not going to be exactly the same either. I don't care how good of an actor this guy is, you know, he's not going to exactly mimic Harvey Dent, and I mean, or look like him, and it's. You know, Batman should have. I mean, the photo, the photo thing was, you know, was fine as a hook, but also comic book artists draw guns and weapons in whatever hand looks best in the layout. Yeah, based they, on the composition. Yeah, yeah it's the, it's all in composition. So, you know, usually they don't. I mean, Captain America might have his shield on his right arm or his left mm-hmm. arm, just according to how good, how it makes the composition, the layout of the page look. So. You know, hinging everything on the fact that Batman notices he keeps using his left hand and Harvey used his right hand in that photo. I mean, they established the photo, so that's good. And they don't show it so huge that it's like, look at this photo, you know, <laughs> uh, which I think is a good thing to do. But uh, there's no neon sign pointing toward it. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but that would work better like on a TV show or something, you know, that, that they established that the character always was right because the actor will probably be right-handed and the get the guy this guy's left-hander you have to use his left hand or something but right. uh yeah i don't i don't know it just kind of didn't quite work although the way that is used i'm thinking back when i first read this comic it is entirely possible that i learned the word ambidextrous from this issue mm. <laughs> <laughs> like they actually bring it up it's on like page tw- uh, 12 it's right. Like, so he switched hands. So what? Maybe he's ambo, ambi, ambidextrous. No, John yeah. Harvey Dent was is right-handed. I was like, <laughs> it's possible. But when I was reading this, I was like, no, oh, okay, that's that's a new word. Yeah. Well, so I, I I think I knew that word because I kind of am. I'm not like completely right. like I can't like write left-handed and stuff, but I like shoot pool left-handed and yeah. I do some things left-handed. So. Uh, so I, I, I think my mom had like said, well, you're this. And I'm like, what that crap's that mean? So I'd like, when it showed up, I'm like, oh yeah, that's that word that, you know, <laughs> so, but again, that's good. That's comics taught, you know, kids, big words. I mean, you know, that's, I had a much better vocabulary. You couldn't tell now by me stumbling over my words on podcast, <laughs> but I had a much bigger vocabulary than a lot of my classmates for sure, because of comics. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So now this is the second issue of Detective in a row where Batman has visited the wife of a criminal and promised to bring them home. Because <laughs> we had the guy last uh, time that was going to, you yep, know, yep, yep, yep. work for the crime doctor. The crime yeah, doctor. yeah, let him operate on him, and and yeah, and now we've got uh, now we've got Sloane's wife. So you think uh, Batman's got a little, you know, side game going on or something? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it, it reminds me of the the old you know uh, Lone Ranger. Me and me and my dad used to joke how the Lone Ranger would send Tano into town and you know let him get beat up and thrown in jail or, or hung while he was out you know talking to the widow rancher's you know uh, the wife you know the the widow of the rancher and and you know getting all snugly with her. So it's maybe it's kind of the same thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, how easy is it to plan a story in Gotham City? That's what I want to know. I mean, <laughs> I mean that goes way back. I mean, Adam West did that a lot on the TV show. Uh, you know, it's. It, I mean, the comics of the fifties, the forties, and the fifties. It's an old trope, especially in Batman comics. But they, the, there's a lot of fake news in Gotham City, and I mean, yes. it's not. It's not. It's nothing new. It's nothing new, people. It was. I mean, because I mean, constantly, you know, and Jim Gordon just. I mean, they just call up the Gotham Gazette, and you know, I, I, I don't see that. I'm sure it did happen in Metropolis, but I don't see Perry White putting up with that. You know, he <laughs> wouldn't. He would. I'm not going to print fake news in my paper. You know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So now and here's another thing, another trope that's common in Westerns and and crime dramas and high stories. The train of money that's going to be going back to the mint to be destroyed. (laughs) Is this how common is this? (laughs) Uh, It's as common as writers needed to be to get to the story for to have a train heist or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it happens. I'm not. I'm just not sure. It's like quicksand. It's like <laughs> it doesn't exist nearly as much as <laughs> as writers seem to think it does. So uh, yeah, but it, you know, it's fine. It's the, the the one thing though, and I enjoyed this story overall. I'll be I'll be honest of the of the bar stuff we've read. This is probably my least favorite one so far, other than some of the wonkier stuff in Batman Year Two. But at least that was exciting. You know that was you know, but. Um, Sloan is a novice at this crime thing. He did it once years before. He just fell back into it. Where did he get these sonic devices to use? <laughs> did that jump out at you? It didn't, but now I'm like, um, yeah. He went to the Star Lab cast-off sale, you know, it's like, yes. you know, close-out sale. Well, we're not making these anymore, so... Uh, they're on clearance, so get you a couple of sonic devices. Oh, you know, if you use two of these together, then the sound makes like their nerve people's nervous system go down. They they empty their bladder and their bowels. It's just it's really ugly. Oh, cool. Okay, uh, you know, I, it, it's but uh, here's the other thing, Batman. How did Batman know that he was going to use something like that? I mean, this is the most Adam West moment in this run of Batman. It's like you got those earplugs I gave you, chum. You know, it's yeah. like, yes, Batman. You know, it's like, we'll put them in. You know, it's like, I thought he might do something like this. Why? Why did you think he would do something <laughs> like this? <laughs> I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that the TV show leaned into to point out the absurdity of comic books, you know. Right, that, right, right. But it's like, we're, we're, we're supposed to not be doing that right now. You know, it's like... <laughs> I mean, it's it's fine, but it's like I mean that's an almost like I mean that's something the super friends would do too, you know. Yeah, yeah. Good thing we have our bad earplugs. You know? <laughs> and Casey Kasem's like, gosh, yes, Batman. You know, it's like I mean, uh, so yeah, it's uh, yeah. I I did like that. You know, of course, we had the setup last time. We knew Two Face was having Sloan operate on somebody. Now, I mean, Two Face had Thorn operating on somebody. Right. Now we know it's Sloan. That was a, there's a nice little bit of continuity between the. Right. Between the issues, yeah. So, uh, of course, Batman has to try to appeal to Harvey Dent by offering to help him, and gets pistol whipped for it. At some point, just give up, bats. There's no <laughs> helping this guy. You know, he's disfiguring people for fun at this point. There's, there's no, there's no helping this guy. You know, <laughs> as an artistic, you know, kind of like flourish. I like that Two Face or one of the Two Faces gun is like a 
double-barreled shotgun, like a sawed-off, like handheld, like almost pistol-sized double-barreled shotgun. I just think that's like a really cool kind of gun for him. Yeah, yeah. I think this was kind of where this started. I mean, I don't remember Two Face carrying a double-barreled shotgun, but he did quite a bit afterwards. You know, yeah. so so I think that maybe this is kind of where it starts here. He may have done it before, but this is why it's jumping out at me as this is early. Anyway, so speaking of guns, why is Sloan now packing tranquilizer darts? Because <laughs> he had a double-barreled shotgun earlier, too. Mm-hmm. So why not just blast them with his shotgun? I mean, he's not, you know, I mean, he's not the real Two-Face. So, I mean, is he that worried about the game of him and Batman and all this? I mean, maybe he is if he thinks he's a real Two-Face, but... I, is it so he doesn't kill anyone, and so at the end of the story, the spoiler warning for part two, uh, the end of the story, 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 and not have to a murder rap on his on him, or I, he would still, you know, face jail time. I'm sorry, but uh, but that just jumped out at me. Like tranquil tranquilizer dogs? What? <laughs> I mean, if he if he if they all knocked him out. You know, and, and like he knocked one of them out and two of his twins knocked the other two out, then that'd be one thing, you know, just knock them out. But to become prepared with tranquilizer darts, it's like everybody's preparedness in this story is a little is a little over the top. I just... He was shopping for his sonic weapons and he saw a two for one sale on tranquilizer darts and he's like, Well, I can't pass that up. It's two for it's two for one. I gotta get it. I checked the coin, you know, flipped the coin. It's like, you know, it's Boss, like, <laughs> we, do, we don't need tranquilizer darts. We can just shoot him with bullets. No. Yeah. Do, do you see the discount? Half off. <laughs> Scott Evil's with him like, I got a gun up in my room. I can go get it right now. <laughs> we can do it as a fan. <laughs> How about no, Scott? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Barr is calling directly back to the era that's inspired him with this story. I mean, it's a sequel to a story from the fifties. You know, I think had Bray Fogle drawn this one, I think probably you and I would both like it more. Uh, But there's, there's, there's more than a few leaps of logic you have to make for this one to work. In in my opinion, it's still an enjoyable read Mm -hmm. and, you know, for 75 cents back then, that's all you can ask for. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not bars best, but, you know, it's it's still better than any of the Max Collins issues. So. It is. It is. Um, unfortunately, I think you know we you know we Barr's run started off so strong with the awesome Alan Davis art and a really good you know opening salvo with a Joker and Catwoman story and everything like it was at such a high and then really kind of stumbled when it hit the the year two storyline and and uh, you know the the last issue with Norm Brayfogle was good but I'm I'm kind of ready for Barr's run to be over. I, th- I think we sort of need to get past this updated, sort of more mature versions of uh, of the 66 TV show, and we need to kind of get into new new original material, which we're going to get um, in a few, a few months, because uh, the next one will be Barr's last, and then there's the Millennium tie-in, and then after that we get uh, some new writers. Yeah, and they take the stories in a whole nother direction. Yeah. I mean, they they do Batman stories like nobody'd really ever done before. So, right. um, yeah, it's 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 it, I, you know, this is definitely you know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, this is safe 
Batman storytelling uh, in a lot of ways for, for Denny to come in as an editor. And of course, this is the type of stuff I guess Barr wanted to do. And and we've eaten it up with a spoon. It's been fun. But yeah, I think maybe the novelty, it, and, and it might be partially too. I mean, I don't think Barr, you know, the relationship between him and Denny, I guess, you know, kind of <laughs> got a little strained. Right. <laughs> uh, so maybe we're starting to see a little bit of that. And that's why the, the story itself doesn't seem as strong as his, as his previous stuff. So. So I don't know. Maybe that's me just conjecturing, but um, you know, it's still it's by no means bad. It's still it's still enjoyable. It's just it's not up to like you said the the Batman the the Catwoman Joker story, the Scarecrow story, which was great, and and uh, the Mad Hatter story and everything. It's it's just not it's just not up to that level. I get the impression that if Crisis on Infinite Earths never happened, Barr's Batman scripts would have been pretty much the same. I get the impression mm. that he had a take on the character. He had a style of Batman story that he wanted to tell, and he had this run that was revisiting Batman's rogues. We saw Bat- Joker and Catwoman. We see Two-Face. We saw Scarecrow, Mad Hatter, all these type of things. And I think he, he had this version of Batman that he wanted to do, which was not very different from what he had been doing at the end of The Brave and the Bold or, um, you know, sort of like pre-crisis, you know, Doug Mencher or or Steve Englehart or Jerry Conway Batman stories sort of of that mold and I think Mm -hmm. he was just he was comfortable with that that was the Batman that he wanted to do and then Crisis happened and then Year One happened and I think there's just this an editorial drive and also maybe just a thirst from the readers who are looking at what's happening to Wonder Woman and looking what happened to Superman in this new era and they want a new take on Batman. They want this new kind of the this new revived energy, something a little bit more modern or postmodern. And I kind of just get the impression that Barr was like, "No, you hired me to do this. This is what I'm going to do." And he was just he was just running out and kind of I think just sort of like keeping his head down and doing the stories that he wanted to do, sort of no matter what where the wind was blowing. And then. You know, whereas this goes back to the first episode, what we were kind of saying, you know, like once you had Crisis and then Legends, Superman and Wonder Woman had definitive new starting points for their stories. Mm -hmm. Batman didn't. It kind of took a year, a year and a half to figure out what the post-Crisis Batman looked like. Right. Um, Yeah. And and I think we're, we're just getting into that because I think I think by the time you really get to the. Starlin Apero and then Grant and Brayfogle eras, which we're coming up upon in like the next couple of months. That's sort of where it's it really feels like they're locked in to what they 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 think they've got going with this character. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think you know too. We've we've said this before, and I, I hate to I hate to bag on Denny O'Neill anymore. We it seems like sometimes we're rough on him in this era, but I I think you know as much as we disliked Max Allen Collins' run. I think there's a lack of editorial direction for both him and Barr to what kind of stories that, you know, I, I think I think Denny was more of like, just let them write whatever Batman stories they want, basically. Right. And, and I think part of it, too, was, you know, Denny, when he worked on Batman, you know, in the 60s, starting out in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, you know, Julius Schwartz would take scripts from him, but he takes scripts from Frank Robbins, and he take takes scripts from David V. Reed, and all these different bat. Some of these older, like Robbins and Reed, were older writers. They've been working in comics since the '40s, and you know, O'Neill was this young guy that just started in the '60s. But they all had different voices, and they didn't necessarily like a Frank Robbins Batman. 
and a Denny O'Neill Batman didn't necessarily mesh exactly. The Neil Adams artwork or Irv Novick artwork made a mesh, but the stories themselves didn't. And maybe that's one reason why he didn't worry about it that much. But like you said, comic fans were starting, you know, you're starting to cater more toward that dedicated comic fan that goes to the comic shop. He's not just pulling the comics off the newsstand because the newsstands are starting to disappear. The comics are starting to disappear from them. And so they're demanding more of a cohesive feel for a character than what Denny was used to writing for when he wrote Batman. Right. So maybe it, maybe it took a while for him to wake up to like, well, this is the way the fans want Batman. They want a consistent <laughs> Batman, you know. Um, it, it's got to be more than just, well, Batman's Bruce Wayne and Robin's Jason Todd. There you go. That's all you need to know. No, you need to like define what kind of stories you're going to tell with the character, what the character would do in a s- given situation. And, and I, you know, so, I mean, the, some of the stuff we hold against Max Allen Collins, you could probably level some of the same complaints against Barb, but because of what you said, Barb was still operating under the assumption that he was going to write Batman the way he wanted to, and he didn't really care what everybody else was doing. Mm-hmm. And in his defense, like we said at one point, he'd been writing Batman in, like you said, The Brave and the Bold, the annual he did, the special, The Player on the Other Side, Batman and the Outsiders, right. for several years. So he figured, I know Batman. You don't got to tell me how to write Batman, you know? So. <laughs> But Batman was changing around him, you know, because of the, the the way the fandom was going and because of the both Miller projects. And and it just, yeah, I think he, yeah. But, I mean, oddly enough, you know, the next thing, when we cover Son of the Demon, I mean, that's pretty far into uh, a, a grittier Bat. That's a pretty gritty Batman story, you know. Right. So, you know, and he gets Batman can be pretty gritty, too. So it's just, it's interesting. It's hard to. It was a. We've said it from the beginning, but this was definitely Batman in a in a humongous state of flux. Yeah, and it it's still fluxing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, are we done with this one? I think we're done with this one. Yeah, that's all I've got on this one. How about you? That's all I got. Um, yeah. So, listeners, as Chris mentioned, the next episode, which should drop in the year two thousand twenty-one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next episode will be our milestone 25th episode of this podcast uh and we're taking a break from the monthly batman and detective books not to deviate from our schedule we're actually covering the next published batman book uh that came out which just luckily enough fortunate for us it kind of does fit in uh it is the original graphic novel batman son of the demon uh, by Mike Barr and Jerry Bingham. So looking forward to that. We're going to do it a little bit differently, but yeah, that's going to be fun. And also by the time you hear this, it's very possible you will have also heard uh, Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland on the Overlook Dark Knight cast also do their uh, coverage of this story. Yeah, well, the good thing is by the time that our episode comes out, it'll be six months since <laughs> Mike and Andy did theirs, so it'll be fine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Japanese, I think